Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Father, I pray that you would impress this, these words upon us. Father, that it would bring about the new life that you've created in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our text before us is one of application. Uh, down to the detail, practical application of what it looks like to live uh, our new life in Christ. But it's important, before we look at what we're to do and what we're to not do, to remember why it is we are to do it. The world believes, uh, the world outside of Christ, those who believe in heaven, believe in a good place and a bad place, believe that those who do good go to a good place and those who do bad go to a bad place. So that whenever someone's told to live in a certain way, the assumption is this must be how I am made right before God. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is all about the grace of God shown to sinners that realize they were not good. Way back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verse 3, here's how Paul begins his letter. It's important that we keep this in mind. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So you were chosen by pure grace before you were ever 
born that you would be holy and blameless before him. Someone might say, why ought I live a holy life? Because before you were born, God in his grace chose you. That you would stand holy before God by the grace of Christ. But that you would live that way is well. Then he says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. That's how we've gotten to where you are, believer. The way where we are is all because of God's glorious grace. That's how this letter begins. And then in verse 7 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Like it was on its last day, and I guess it was. (laughs) This mic gives me a little more bass anyway, so I kind of like it. But what we read at the beginning of this letter is that a person finds his and her redemption in the blood of Christ. So living a holy life and loving one another and striving for unity is not to earn our place before God. We could never do that. We could never be good enough. We could never be holy enough. But what we read is, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, because of the great love with which Christ has loved us, he made us alive. We became spiritually alive through the new birth. And what Paul is saying now is, live out of this new life you've been given by grace. So that anyone here that has never understood the gospel of grace and what Christianity is all about, what Christianity is all about is recognizing you aren't good. In fact, you've fallen short of the glory of God and deserve eternal punishment. But God in His love has given Christ His own Son to die in your place so that His blood can be your redemption. And that when a person trusts in Christ, it's evidence of a new birth, a new life that's been given to that person. And now Paul is talking about what it looks like. He's saying, live like who you really are. Not to earn a status. You're already sons and daughters of God, adopted by God. Your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Now live this way because you're no longer enslaved to sin. Live out of your new nature. And as we look at what it looks like to put off the old self and put off the new self, what you'll realize is in our text today, it's all about 
our relationships to one another. Remember at the beginning of chapter 4, in verse 1, here's what he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I think that's the summary statement there. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what does God want to do with this new life? He wants to bring about love us to God and us to one another. That's what He wants to bring about in the new man. Love God and love neighbor sums up the law, Christ says. And so in the new man, it's love and it's holiness, unity. It's love and unity and it's holiness. And now we're seeing the unpacking of that throughout the rest of Ephesians. And what we're going to see as we live out this new life in Christ, it's much more than simply not being bad. Sometimes people consider what it means to be holy is is just stop doing bad things. But what we're going to see in this text is God didn't save us just so that we would be not bad, but He saved us that we would do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God didn't only prepare your salvation for you before you were ever born, but He also predestined and your works you will do in the new man. Which is incredible to think about. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus 3 quickly. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 because I want you to see this. We see how Paul thinks about good works in in relation to our new birth. In a sense, we kind of have a good works sandwich in Titus 3. In verse 1, Paul says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. All right. So there's the bread on top of the sandwich. We're to be ready for every good work. Now look at what he says. To speak evil of no one. See, he's speaking relationally here. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, for we ourselves were once foolish, that's the old man, right? Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's the old life. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us. So the transition was not because we all of a sudden decided to be better people, but because God saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's the new birth, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, he might become, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then he says this, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, so that's something that's already happened, for those people that they may be careful to do what? Devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, it's relational. So your new birth, the purpose of it is that you can glorify God now by your life, not to earn your salvation, but to reflect Jesus Christ in this world, to be conformed into His image. So let's look at what it looks like practically. The drive of this message is since you are new in Christ, be like Jesus. Since you have Christ's life living in you, in the Spirit of God, live like Jesus. What does it look like? Therefore, having put away falsehood, could be interpreted, having put away the lie. Where would one think to begin in considering on where to start in living out of your new nature? And the picture that Paul gives us here is take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes since you are new in Christ. Why would he start with put off falsehood? Having put away falsehood, having put away the law or, or the lie. The whole life of the non-believer was engulfed in the lie was deceived by Satan. In John 8.44 we read, as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, He says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So in the old man, before a person was saved, they were living in the realm of the lie. Where people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
Rather than take the creator of the world and worship him, we take his things and worship the things. Our whole life was engulfed in falsehood. So coming to Christ then is leaving the father of lies and coming to Jesus, the truth, Incarnate. Jesus is the truth. He's, you're, you're leaving the lie and you're putting on the truth. When a person receives Christ, they receive the truth. We know that one of the Ten Commandments the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's a sin to lie. In Colossians 3.9, we're told, do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self with its practices. If Jesus Christ is truth incarnate, and he has given you new life, and his spirit lives within you, then, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see the put off and then the put on. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So speaking the truth to one another surely involves building one another up by speaking the word of God to one another. But here, Paul is reminding them also simply to be honest with one another where before they were deceptive. Before they would, maybe they weren't outright lies all the time, but it was just living a life of deceit. And then he gives a reason for why we ought to do this. He says, for we are members of one another. So for brothers and sisters in Christ to lie to one another, to deceive one another, is especially heinous because Christ died for us that we would be unified. And where there's deception and where there's dishonesty, there will be lack of trust, and where there's lack of trust, there will be lack of unity and lack of love. And so Paul begins speaking to Christians and showing them what it looks like to live out of their new life. He calls them to live honest lives. And then secondly, he says this, be angry and do not sin. This is actually pretty much a direct quotation from Psalm 4.4. It's actually not a command to be angry. I don't think that's the right way to understand this. The, the Hebrew idiom uh, essentially means uh, do not sin in your anger. We all know that to be angry in and of itself isn't necessarily sin. There can be a righteous anger. But what he says here 
is do not get angry in such a way that you lose control and therefore sin. That's the idea. So if living in falsehood and lies was a fundamental trait of our old life in Christ, another fundamental trait would be fits of uncontrolled anger, which leads to sin. And and what I would say is, this text is convicting. This whole whole text is. If, If essentially at the beginning of this text, we all should ask ourselves, what do our clothes look like? What, what does our clothes look like? Does it look like new clothes that are on the new man and the new woman in Christ? And if the paradigm we're given in Ephesians is unity with one another and love on the one hand and holiness on the other, As you look at yourself honestly, how are your clothes? What is it? What do they look like? Does is your life full of fits of uncontrolled anger, which then leads to sin that you find yourself regretting later? And if it does, Christian, Paul is saying, remember who you are. Don't put on those clothes that mark the old life. He says, be angry and do not sin. And then he says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So I think it's helpful because I think Paul has Psalm 4 in mind since he's he's basically quoting Psalm 4. Let's go there. The anger that seems to be plaguing David in Psalm 4 is with Israel that is believing lies about himself and therefore turning his honor into shame, his own son is actually trying to kill him on this particular night. As his Absalom's trying to take over his kingdom. So David could be angry. Here's here's how he starts Psalm 4. And just to give a plug to this, one of my most Go to Psalms when I'm going to bed at night and my heart is uneasy. I might be angry. I might be upset. This is the go to. The circumstances David is in is almost beyond what you can imagine. You've had bad days. Has your child been trying to kill you? Have you been run out of your house? Has the whole country turned themselves on you as they're speaking lies about you? He's in a bad circumstance. Here's what he says. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. 
you have given me relief when I was in distress. He goes back on God's relief he's given him in the past. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So that's his circumstance that's causing him distress. And then he says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And then he says, be angry and do not sin. Well, that's our text in Ephesians, right? And then he does say something about going to bed. He says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And I think what he's saying there is ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds, be in relation to God in light of your difficult circumstance. And when it says be silent, what it means is be still. Take your circumstance before the Lord and be still as you go to bed. The reason why I think that's what he's saying, verse 5 says, offer right sacrifices. Who needs to offer sacrifices? Sinners. So while I'm on my bed, remember that these people are wronging me, but remember I'm a sinner in how I relate to you, God. That's why sacrifices would need to be there. Right? And put your trust in the Lord. That's what the pondering is about. Realize who you are before God. And then he imagines other people with good circumstances. Look at what he says. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Here's what David says. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David says, if you want to see a good circumstance... Be in relation to a God that hears your prayer. Be in relation to a God who is gracious and looks upon you on your most difficult day as you're going to bed. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. He says, you've put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. David is saying, as I'm being chased by my son who wants to kill me and people are speaking lies about me, I have more joy in my heart because I'm communing with God. I have more joy in my heart than on their best circumstantial days. Their crop is big. They're partying with their friends. He says, I have it better. And then verse 8, the verse that I've read with my children a thousand times, as fears can come at night, look at what it says. If you have a pencil and you write in your Bible, I want to show you where to write. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. 
on this very night, Absalom's going to try to kill him in his sleep. That's the goal. And David says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. Someone could say, how? Look at what he says. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And where David says, for you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety, that's where we put in our revenge. That's where we put in our changed circumstance. Lord, I can't be at peace unless my circumstances change. I will not be at peace unless my circumstances change. David says there's only one thing that can settle his heart and make him sleep at night, and it's if the Lord hears his prayer. He has it better than anyone else with wonderful circumstances because David could be on his bed furious, self-justified. They're telling lies about me. I've done good. This isn't fair. My own son wants to kill me. He could be the biggest victim there ever was. But instead of viewing himself as a victim in his difficult circumstance, he instead imagines that he has it better than anyone else in the whole world. Because the Lord is the only one that can make a person dwell in peace. And the Lord has made him dwell with, in safety so he can sleep. I'm afraid, Dad. Keep the lights on. Can the lights make a person dwell in safety? For you alone. If you write in your Bible... Circle you alone. Notice in your life when you do ultimatums there. I will not be at peace until this circumstance changes. Because if you wait for that circumstance to change, it might change, but you won't have peace like you would have had if you would have gone to the Lord. So I think when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, you go read Psalm 4, it's not only don't go to bed bitter and angry, which would be harmful for you and for your relationships, that's true, but it's go to bed without anger because you see God, you approach God in light of your circumstances. And then in verse 27, look at what he says. And give no opportunity to the devil... Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because the devil is going to watch your anger and he's going to say, great opportunity for my 
plans for what I want. I want disunity in the body of Christ. I want bitterness in the body of Christ. And this person, as they laid there in their bed, just stiff-armed God. And where God is stiff-armed, my time comes. See, the devil can't do much or anything with someone who finds their hope in God. But as soon as God is rejected, I won't have peace from God. I'm going to have peace only from good circumstances. Now the devil says, I have opportunity. I have opportunity to build dissension amongst the brothers. This is what F.F. Bruce says. There can be no such heart communing with God in the night watches if the sense of provocation or anger has not first been dispelled. Even if it is not practicable before the sundown to seek out the person who's occasioned the anger, one can still be reconciled with him at heart by taking the trouble to the Lord and leaving it with him. You see, the reason why David could sleep so good is because his God was big. He knew who God was. He remembered who God was. You know, you could teach this to someone, say, trust in the Lord. And if their understanding of the Lord is so small, then of course they're not going to experience relief. It's for those who know God. You know, this, this is what Augustine said. He said, I would cast my cares upon the Lord. They would fall right back down on top of me. I would cast them up and they would fall down on, on top of me. And the reason why they would, God says, cast your cares upon me for I care for you. So why would they fall back down on Augustine? He said, it's because my view of God was like a vapor. So I cast my cares up and they fell through the vaporness of his little understanding of the Lord. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, well, I know I got an anger problem. I know I got an anxiety problem and I have trouble getting to sleep at night. First, you have to know the attributes of God. you got to know who God is that you're communing with and who you're praying to and what He's done for you in Christ. And then in that moment, you can't stiff-arm Him and give opportunity to the devil. This is very practical. All right, we'll do one more, and then we'll do part two next week. So, number three, put off stealing and put on hard work and generosity. Look at what he says, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. All right. Notice that Paul doesn't say... First off, that the thief should stop 
stealing and work hard so he could provide for himself. I think there's that implication there, but look look at what he says. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And this is Paul reminding us, you're not created to just not do bad, but you're actually created to give and to share. Your hard work is meant to do more than meanly uh, simply cover your own needs. But this whole text is relational. It's not just that a thief stops, but it's that relational love can be shown through sharing one's own wealth. Practical advice here. Christians are to be hard workers. And before you simply shrug this off as not pertaining to you, you know, you might say, well, I'm not always totally honest, and I get angry sometimes, but I certainly don't steal. I want you to to consider all the different ways a person might steal. An employer could be stingy with the way they share their wealth with their workers. In a sense, you could not give a bonus you're supposed to give. We read about this in James, that on Judgment Day, these harvesters that never got paid will be crying out against the wealthy and, and the rich. But if you're an employee and you work for a company and you're getting paid to work and when no one's watching, you're messing around on your phone or you're taking extra long break and you kind of slow down when your employer is not watching, are you not stealing from your employer. You see, in the new man, Christians are to be the hardest workers. Whether you're watching them or not watching them, you shouldn't have to worry about them because they're honest and they don't want to steal. In fact, they want the company to do well. The Christian ought to give more for the sake of whoever their employer might be. And obviously, there's taxes. You can steal from the government. You can steal in all sorts of different ways. And if you say you're never tempted to do it, I'm going to say, now you're probably struggling with lying again. So... The reality is the standard in Christ is high. And the motivation to do it is not, well, I'm supposed to do good things and not bad things. The motivation is supposed to be, I'm new in Christ. I'm to live out of this new life God has given me in Christ. What a privilege the Lord has given us. And the challenge is, the way we succeed in this is 
by every morning when you wake up, you need to ask yourself the question, who am I? And then you need to remember who you are in Christ. What's the purpose of my life? The purpose of my life is to glorify God with my life who is doubly worthy of my praise and adoration. He not only created me once, He recreated me in the new birth, has showed me grace upon grace upon grace, and I have the opportunity to live a free life in the light of the truth, doing honest work, for the good of other people. And it's only when we wake up and just start our day and forget who we are that we begin to fall, put on the old clothes. If you forget who you are, you're going to start dressing like you used to dress. And so, the Scripture, incredibly practical for our everyday life, 